we don't fully understand what joy is. We think of it as, at least I did, I thought of it as kind of a happiness on steroids. Um, but joy is really, um, it's a relational joy. It's not, it's not that I'm happy, it's that I'm happy to be with you. In other words, you can have joy and be in the midst of the greatest distress. And I can come and you can see from my face that I am happy to be with you in your distress and walk with you through it. Well, right there, I just injected joy into your sadness. So joy doesn't mean you have to, you know, stuff your negative emotions and walk around with a smiley face on you all the time, all day long. What it means is that you can feel that God's face is shining on you, even in, in both good and difficult times, in your community as well. You, you can tell from the eyes, like if you are going through a very difficult time and you in your, have a lot of negative emotions about something, but someone comes along and says, I'm, I, even their face says, I'm glad to be with you in this. I, I'm glad to be with you when you're sad or when you're angry or when you're ashamed or when you're disgusted. Um, that is incredibly strong to our brain and it actually helps, it helps us regulate negative emotions. You know, it's really the thing the brain looks at and looks for more than any other thing. It's constantly scanning our environment for, boy, for joyful faces lighting up on it. And, uh, and it really functions as the relational gas tank in our brain. It gives us energy. So the more spontaneously we see faces lighting up, like as we go into church or go into our group, or as we in, inside our families, what we're doing is we're just filling up everyone's relational gas tank. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 40. So I am super excited to share today's episode with you. We're talking about what it looks like to have a spiritually and emotionally healthy community and the foundations and pillars of characteristics um, that it takes for a thriving community to grow individually, collectively, in a way that is authentic and that is deeply rooted and connected. And I think this is so important because many of us have been in an environment, right? Or a group or community where it's the opposite, where it's toxic and it is undercurrented by fear and shame and guilt in a way that doesn't help anyone grow, that doesn't make you feel completely safe or goes through the motions and legalism of doing things just for the sake of doing them but bypasses the root causes for the culture of that community or that group or that environment and why it's that way and what needs to be changed or what's missing. So today I had a beautiful conversation with my guest Michael Hendricks and we got to dive into both the brain science and the practical characteristics side of what it looks like to foster a community that is emotionally in tune, that is spiritually healthy, and that is thriving and growing. So that we are creating safe spaces, right? And safe environments that people can come to from wherever they are and experience genuine and long lasting growth on their journey. I think that this conversation applies to friendships, to relationships, to small group settings, to ministries, to churches, to organizations, and even businesses about the culture that we're creating for people. Or as Michael says in this episode, you know, what we're putting in the soil, what we're planting in the soil of all of these things, our friendships, our relationships, our groups and communities that we're involved in. So today's guest, Michael Hendricks, hails from Denver Seminary with his Master's of Divinity and has been a teacher and trainer for more than 25 years. He's the former pastor of spiritual formation at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette, Colorado, and he's also served and trained people in Argentina, Bolivia, Mexico, Kenya, South Sudan, and Uganda. He's the author of Basic Training for for walking with Jesus and intentional apprenticeship. And he and his wife, Claudia, have three adult children. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Michael on how to foster an emotionally and spiritually healthy community. All 
All right, so I have Michael Hendricks here today as our guest, and I'm super excited because he had a run-in story with one of our guests, Dr. Jim Wilder, if you guys got to tune into his episode um, about uh, the brain in spiritual formation. So I'm really excited to dive into that topic today with Michael here. So Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I live in Colorado. It's a nice sunny day and a beautiful morning. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I'm right here in California. I'm not too far off. And we're having pretty good weather, too. <sighs> so for those who aren't familiar with you, um, I would love to know more about the work that you're doing um, and what has led you to, you have a book, The Other Half of the Church, C Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. And we definitely want to hear all about the work you're doing there. So for those who aren't familiar, let us know a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I became a Christian in my late teens, in my early college years, uh, kind of just from nothing. Like I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't, mm. I'd never read the Bible. I, I kind of, my knowledge of those things was so little. I didn't even know what Easter was for. Like mm. when I, when I became a Christian, I remember going to church for the first time on Easter and it was all about the resurrection. And I leaned over to my friend and said, so is Easter a celebration of the resurrection? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was from another planet. Wow. <laughs> And so, you know, I grew like, like crazy through college and then, you know, got into jobs and works and starting a family and everything. And eventually um, went into ministry, got a seminary degree. And I was a, I was a pastor of spiritual formation and discipleship at a large church here in Colorado. And, and this is really what started my journey towards, you know, what we call the title of our book is the other half of church, which, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I kept seeing is, as a discipleship pastor, my job was to help people change in their character to develop into the image of Christ, right? Right. And we all, we've, all, we've all heard that phrase and everything, but when I, I found when I actually tried to help people do it, um, it seemed like it would you know, work really well sometimes, and, uh, and it seemed to not work at all other times. Yeah. And it seemed to work for some people sometimes and not for other people other times. And so... I really was left just scratching my head thinking, you know, almost admitting to God, I don't think I know how to do my job. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it's like an imposter syndrome almost. Yeah. I, I was like, I was missing, I could tell I was missing some variables, you know, it's like I knew right. part of what helped people grow, but I was missing something, but I didn't know what I was missing. And, uh, you know, I'd find myself sitting in my office at the church and just kind of scratching my head and looking at my dry erase board and wanting like a picture to appear in my mind or something. And, right. and it was about that time when I met Jim Wilder through kind of a fluke. So this is really kind of the story that brings us two together. Wow. That's really interesting because you get like, right, you go into the church, into ministry serving um, with kind of this mission in mind of what you're going to do. And then you find that people are so multi-layered. They're so dynamic. And it is not so black and white, like everything that you're saying. And, and people are coming from all different backgrounds and even cultures and upbringings and what have you. And so it's like, you know, what works for different people is just so personal. Um, right. And I was and I have that's kind of similar for me. But with with mental health, you know, it was, you know, people were having mental health challenges with trauma and what have you. But and we'd pray for folks, right? And we'd um, sit there and support them. But you know, things weren't changing, you know, mindset-wise mm -hmm. or habitually. And even though you're doing all these spiritual practices, and so I had that same moment that was like, what am I missing about mental health? What am I not completely understanding? What am I not connecting? So that's I, I really um, I really respect that. I respect the questions, you know, in the church. Um, where some people don't question it. So what, what would you say was the most frustrating for you as a pastor of discipleship? Like anything in particular that took place that was like a light bulb moment? Well, some of the hardest things for me, like one of the things I did is I, uh, I, I created a five-week um, study training program with people in our church. We meet once a week for five weeks and work on spiritual disciplines. So it'd be like meditation of scripture, prayer, yeah. Um, going into nature, silence and solitude. And, uh, you know, I'd take maybe 50 to 70 people at, time through, at, at a time through that training. And they would, during the week, they'd go out and do a bunch of exercises and they'd bring them back and share what was good and what didn't work. And, 
And that's really where it became clear that I was missing something because some people would come to me after those trainings and say, you know, this, I had no idea this kind of work even existed in the church. This has been revolutionary for me. Wow. And then two minutes later, someone would come back, come by me and say, you know, this, I just was, wasn't able to do any of this. It just didn't, didn't click for me. Yeah. And so it's, it's not like I was all wrong, you know, like everything I was doing was failing it, but it, it, it was just very clear. I was missing um, parts of the formula about how God designed us to change as far as our our character and even, even understanding what character is. And so, you know, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm bumping up against my own knowledge and yet that's my job. And so that was frustrating because I just, you know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And what would you say character is? Or, I mean, obviously the goal is like to conform more into the character of Christ. But for someone who's listening who kind of isn't familiar with those nuances or, you know, like what, what would you say that that looks like as far as trying to help people grow? So that's a really good question. Um, you know, that's really gets to the center of one of the things I didn't even understand about what character is. You know, Dallas Willard, who, yeah. who wrote a lot about discipleship as well, he uh, he defined it, you know, uh, that when we have the character of Christ, then we kind of easily and naturally do what Jesus would do and say what Jesus would say if he were in our shoes in this moment. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like this easy thing that just comes out of our character and spontaneously. Yeah. Um, and then after meeting Jim Wilder and learning a little bit more about God, how God designed our brains and especially the character building areas of our brains, um, character is very much our instantaneous response to our, our relational surroundings. Mm. And it's not under, it's not under direct um, willpower. Right. And when Jim told me that, I'm like, what do you mean? How can character not be under our willpower? How can I change my character if it's not my, under my willpower? You know, that's one of those questions I'd ask, start kind of smiling, a little smile, and then sit down, and then we'd have a long talk. And he would explain to me that character is this mix of our, what our values are and what we think is important and what our people, our people, the people that we're attached to, my group, which he calls group ID, identity. What do, I, what do my people do in this situation? Mm. Those things combine together faster than conscious thought and produce our instantaneous, spontaneous reactions to our, our surroundings. Yeah, it's like automatic. So, right, like when you're driving your car and uh, someone cuts you off, right? Right. There's an instantaneous reaction there. And then, then later, slower, our, our, our left brain, what we would call slower willpower, our conscious thought says, oh, I shouldn't be angry at this person. And then maybe we do some damage repair or kind of correct the way we're thinking. And that's good, but that's not character. Character is those spontaneous responses. And we can actually do things to change those. Um, but they're very indirect. They're not direct mm-hmm. because we don't have conscious control of them. I really love that. Just like kind of the automatic yeah. fruits of your spirit that are coming out. And uh-huh. wow, I mean, this is so much bigger than my 90s WWJD bracelet where exactly. I would just look down, <laughs> you know, where you're going through life and you look down and you have your WWJD bracelet and you go, what would Jesus do? Um, maybe that was more of a reinforcer than something automatic. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad thing. The problem is by the time you had the conscious thought to look down at your wrist, right? You, you've, your character's already come out. Right, right. That's true. Now, the, what, what would Jesus do will help you repair the mess you've just made. Or maybe maybe validate that you did the right thing, but it's all too late. It's too slow. Right. And for those who are listening who are like, this whole what would Jesus do idea is kind of very vague. Um, I would love it if you could share a little bit more about the fruits of the Spirit and kind of like what those are and what those look like when we say we're kind of trying to naturally come into the character of Christ. Yeah, well, Jesus talks about it a lot. Um, you know, his, his most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really a, a large exposition about what does it look like to live in God's kingdom on earth? Yeah. Notice it, it's not so much talking about what it's going to be like in heaven, though it'll be very similar, but it's in this messy, messy place down here with the brokenness and, you know, people who lie, people who harm you, selfishness, everything. And then Jesus dives in and, and basically, you know, for a 15-minute, 20-minute sermon, says this is what it looks like to live in this mess. 
Um, you know, Paul talks about it too a, a lot. You know, and you know, he says he he, he uh, kind of lays it out as far as the, the basic character is compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Like those are like the undergirding parts of all of our behavior and all our reactions to the world. Yeah. So sometimes, so whenever we find ourselves getting out of, it also goes back to first Corinthians 13 in this chapter on love, which is, says the same stuff. It's patient. It's kind, you know, it's, and so those things help us see what love is, but just reading the verses alone, even meditating on them aren't really the direct way to change that so that we are naturally and spontaneously more kind, more compassionate slower to anger, things like that. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the signup process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I really love that. When I came to Christ and just really, you know, was baptized and really threw myself into this walk with Christ, I really did see this radical transformation in my own character over time. And so, you know, I always say, like, I I don't regret a thing about um, my coming to Christ because it transformed the way that I love people and connect with people Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, And here's what's unfortunate. And I think this, I'm trying to how to say this. I think this even comes out in today. We're in a lot of like, for example, political tensions and just maybe social justice tensions and what have you in the world. And you have believers, you know, and it's like, okay, we're all believers, you know. And so, you know, you see Christians act uncharacteristically, you know, you see Mm -hmm. Christians act not like Christ. And you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like we all have the spirit of Christ. We believe in this same word about everything you said, love, patience, gentleness, kindness, um, just heart for one another. Um, And then, but you see that, that, that character doesn't always, that character transformation doesn't always take place, you know, in, in people. Um, around you. And that's what's unfortunate. And I think that's what turns off people who aren't in the church sometimes because um, they may claim to be believers, but they're not acting like, you know, Christ 
followers, like the attitude of Christ. Um, or it's just religious, you know, people kind of go in and out of church, but their character doesn't change. And so, I mean, and sometimes you're just like, I don't, you know, we're listening to the same word, you know, we believe in the same, you know, God of love, of patience, of peace, of kindness. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think we don't see more radical character transformation in churches? Well, I think the, the, the analogy I use uh, is that of soil. And uh, I pulled it from my own experience where I, uh, when, when we first bought a home here in Colorado, one of the summers, first summers we were in this home, we, we planted tomatoes and the tomatoes just kind of exploded. I mean, they just went crazy. They were all over the yeah. place and we got hundreds and hundreds of tomatoes. And then I kept planting in the same place. And over time I saw the harvest go down and down and down until like five years later, we got like 20 tomatoes. Mm. Whereas the, mm-hmm. you know, the first where we did it, we got something probably close to 400 tomatoes. It was like ridiculous. We didn't know what to do with them. Wow. And uh, so I went online and I looked, looked up, you know, declining harvests in tomatoes online and, and found that tomatoes are, uh, they're very voracious devourers of the nutrients in the soil. So they'll deplete your soil over time. So if you want to, if you want to have good crops every year, you need to be constantly replenishing the soil with all the nutrients that mm. the, uh, that the tomatoes are pulling out. You That's know, as they good. Grow. Yeah. And so the, the analogy crossover into the church is a lot of churches and Christian communities and ministries have a depleted, a depleted soil and, uh, and they're doing really, really good things. Um, but even if you have really good seeds or really, really healthy plants and you put them in depleted soil and you water them well, they're still not going to grow well because the soil itself is not rich. It's not healthy. Right. And, uh, and so specifically all of the nutrients, the relational nutrients of, of, of the soil of a church that are necessary, they're all, all relational. They have to do with our connectedness to each other and our connectedness to God. And, uh, and those things can be built in, in, and over the last, you know, 500 years, we've kind of lost um, focusing on the relational side of our church and so over time, just like my, my tomatoes, I believe the soil has become depleted. Right. Right. I think that's such a, I love that analogy. You know, I, I served in church for years and it's and it's true. It, it's hard because there are like two truths is existing at once. Like one, all of these, all of the relational side needs to be done. But then it's like at the same time, the pastor is trying to cast vision, trying to organize, trying to organize team members and volunteers. And so there's still this organizational aspect to it. And so you find that maybe sometimes one outweighs the other, like the organizational side um, might outweigh the the relational side. And it becomes more about the organization, you know, the quote unquote, like organization of the church. And it's hard because you do need that practicality for a church to run smoothly. Um, but it can be so easy, I think, I've seen to get trapped in that organizational side that you neglect how those authentic relationships are being built. And so I wanted to ask you maybe more practically um, what your advice is on how a church can improve its relational soil. Like what might that look like in maybe, I don't know, week to week or day to day for someone who is serving or in leadership on how they can improve that relational soil and not just that organizational side kind of taking over so that things are thriving. Yeah. You, you know, there's definitely a need for the organizational and vision casting side and we're, and, and we're not suggesting that you throw that out and just focus on the love. Um, but what, but that's yeah. your fo- that you build the love um, in in coherence with everything else you do. Um, but that we would say love is the foundation. It's the it's the starting point, and it's and without solid love, you know, according to uh, well, both Jesus's um, evaluation of the Ephesian church in the Book of Revelation, and also Paul's uh, sermon on love in First Corinthians thirteen, they basically come down to say if you don't have love, nothing else you do is going to work. Yeah. You have nothing. Value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So love is really the place we start. And, and so for, I, we boil down the, uh, the nutrients in the soil to four nutrients and they are joy, uh, attachment, um, group identity, and then healthy correction. And they mm-hmm. kind of go in that order. Um, joy really, according to the brain, and this is where Jim Wilder really has influenced my speaking. The joy is what I feel when I can see on your face that you are happy to be with me. 
that I'm special. Right, right. And, uh, and I get it from your voice tone, your body posture. You get a little bit from words, but it's really mostly from face and eyes. I can see a twinkle in your eye. I can see a lighting up of your face. Mm, that's sweet. I like that. And joy really functions as, you know, it's really the thing the brain looks at and looks for more than any other thing. It's constantly scanning our environment for, vo- for joyful faces lighting up on us. Mm. And, uh, and it really functions as the relational gas tank in our brain. It gives us energy. So the more spontaneously we see faces lighting up, like as we go into church or go into our group, or as we in, inside our families, what we're doing is we're just filling up everyone's relational gas tank. Oh, I love that. I talk, I'm always talking about how our brain is scanning for like pain and trauma and defense, but it's so refreshing to think on the other side that it's actually scanning for joy and connection too. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's looking, Jim Wilder even said when I first met him, he said, you know, the, the brain is, is looking and wants joy more than any other thing. That's the first thing it's trying to find. Mm. And uh, when you're a baby, your face was scanning your mother's face. You had one face there um, and you and her face would light up. And that and that actually spurns the growth of the baby's brain. It's kind of a, a somewhat undeveloped substrate and it starts filling in through the joy you know, in a sense, John, Jim Wilder even says the brain of the mother is being downloaded through her eyes into the eyes of the baby and forming that baby's brain. That's how central it is to who we are, joy. Mm, I really love that. Um, and I know I want to get to the other nutrients, but I do want to just up- unpack this a little bit more because I feel like in the Christian, well, not me personally, but I've even, you hear this as well about the Christian community and, and committing to these spiritual disciplines. It's almost comes off very stoic, you know. Um, the yep, Bible yep. reading and, you know, it's just your discipline and you die to self and you carry your cross and all of those things are, you know, necessary as we're transforming, you know, more into Christ. But like, you know, there's this it, almost like you should be miserable, <laughs> you yep, know, as, yep. a, as a Christian and under the weight and burden of your walk with Christ and suffering in a way like like this is what it means to be a true um, sacrificial cross carrying believer. Um, but I don't think we hear enough about actually like being joyful and like happiness and like happiness is not a sin and joy is not a sin, um, you know, um, and they're gifts from God. And so um, I, I really would love to even talk more about that, about how we have, um, <clears throat> about how we've just suppressed that, like we've suppressed joy in our in our walk as like a part of being a believer and why that's important yeah i think one of the reasons that happens is that we don't we don't fully understand what joy is we think of it as at least i did i thought of it as kind of a happiness on steroids yeah yeah um but joy is really um it's a relational joy it's not it's not that i'm happy it's that i'm happy to be with you yeah in other words, you can have joy and be in the midst of the greatest distress. And I can come and you can see from my face that I am happy to be with you and you're distressed and walk with you through it. Well, right there, I just injected joy into your sadness. Mm. So you don't, you don't, so joy doesn't mean you have to, you know, stuff your negative emotions and walk around with a smiley face on your all the time. All day right. Long. What it means is that you can feel that God's face is shining on you, even in, in both good and difficult times, in your community as well. You, you can tell from the eyes, like if you are going through a very difficult time and you and you're, have a lot of negative emotions about something, but someone comes along and says, I'm, I, even their face says, I'm glad to be with you in this. I, I'm glad to be with you when you're sad or when you're angry or when you're ashamed or when you're disgusted. Um, that is incredibly strong to our brain, and it actually helps it helps us regulate negative emotions. You know, they don't spike like, like they might spike. We don't get stuck in these emotions like we might otherwise. Joy actually gives us what Jim Wilder calls resilience, emotional resilience, where we can handle handle bigger emotions without our identity changing, our personality changing, without getting stuck in them. Yeah. And, um, and, and when I heard of joy, I actually went through and started reading the whole Bible looking for joy, and I just... I found it all over the place. Like one of the classic ones, of course, is number six, uh, a blessing given to the nation of Israel. And it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord make his face, turn his face toward you and give you peace. 
And that, that making his face shine on you is, is like the neuro, it is the neurological definition of joy. The, the thing that our brain desires is a face lighting up on us. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. Oh man. So, okay. So what I love about what you're talking about is this idea that joy and sadness or difficult times can coexist. And in fact, joy helps regulate that. And we do find that in, in bonding, you know, um, with each other and yep. just inviting, kind of letting that light of someone else in who is willing to sit with you, sit with your spirit um, and, and carry that with you and bring you joy. I think a lot of times people feel guilty for having joy, um, maybe especially if they've experienced loss or grief or are going through mm -hmm. a hard time or like, or even shame themselves if they're feeling shameful that they shouldn't feel joy, that they should wallow right. in their pity and feel shameful about themselves and they don't let joy in. And so I love that um, you're talking about how basically it can coexist. Like, yeah, you can, you might feel those things. You might feel grief. You might feel loss. You might feel shame, but you know, open yourself up to letting joy in and letting that be a, a step in your transformation process. Um, rather than something that is um, juxtaposed to what you're feeling and opposite. It's not. They can exist together and be a huge part in your healing. Um, and I think that's beautiful. So, okay, so the other nutrients. We got joy. <laughs> and then there were, I think, three more. Yes. So the second one is, is what we call attachment. It's love. Um, we, we don't use the word love in the book. We use the, the Hebrew word that's often translated love, which is hesed. Um, it, it's translated unfailing love or, or uh, everlasting loving kindness, but it's really our attachment to uh, to each other and to God, and it's a family level of attachment. In other words, this is this is a deep bonding, and this bonding is really required for for us to get then into the care, the deep character changing circuits part of our brain. Um, and, and Jim Wilder even says the our, our hesed, our attachments are kind of operate like a firewall. Like if you don't have a deep bond with someone, a family level bond that, that doesn't just go away. It's not like a work bond where you work with them for a while and then you get a new job and you don't ever see them again. Yeah. Um, this is really very much like a family level bond where if, if one of the people has to move away because of a job, you, you suffer, you're sad. Uh, life feels different without that person. Um, there's a, there's a permanent bond. And when, when they come back and visit, it's almost like you're, you know, you're with your brother and sister or your best friend or your parents again. And there's this instant reconnection. And, uh, and so for churches to renew their relational soil, they need to start revolving what they do around building these chesed, these attachment, deep attachment-like bonds, um, rather than just kind of acquaintanceships or keep being just to a certain level. Um, right. you know, and that's one of the biggest enemies of this is um, just, uh, you know, semi-deep semi relationships that kind of lull us to thinking we're doing enough, but but we haven't gone to the level that would build this kind of attachment. Um, and you might ask, well, how do you do that? And there's a bunch of things you do. One of the things, one of the ways you build this attachment is you start building joy together because joy and hesed kind of build each other. The love builds the joy and the joy builds the love. Um, and another thing that, that very deeply builds um, our love for each other, this deep love is, and this is key, it's sharing weakness, sharing our weaknesses. Mm, yeah. So, so that we're not putting on the happy face, but that we can go into the deepest and darkest and most confusing areas of our lives with each other and know that we'll receive kindness and compassion and patience um, and that the other person will do the same with us and that we don't give each other advice unless it's asked for. Um, that's, you know, that's a big, a big one. How, it's a big <laughs> love has said killer. Is when that is a big one. Or give advice or, yeah. or even recite a scripture. But instead, what they want is to connect with you, listen with you, sit with you in it. And, uh, and, and the relationship is the center, the connection there. It's even a lot of it's nonverbal. They'll sit in silence with you if need be. Yeah, I really love that. Healthy attachments. Okay, and then yeah. the third nutrient. So the third nutrient, it was the newest one for me, and it's what we call group identity. Mm -hmm. And our, our brain is really, really uh, kind of built around group identity. Once we 
kind of reach the, the puberty age, early adult of like 12, 12 or 13 years old, our brains undergo a structural change. And, uh, and before that, we largely got our group identity from our caregivers, from our parents, from our family. Right. Um, but once, once we uh, kind of go into that structural change in the brain, we start getting more of our group identity from our people. And those are the people that I call my people with whom I have this Hesed attachment bond and with whom I have joy, who I'm happy to be with. Yeah. If I have joy and I have the attachment love with them, then all of a sudden these circuits get activated and they're like my brain looking around and seeing who, what kind of people are, are we? How do we act in this situation? Mm. Um, and so hearing it from the community is especially important. You know, we have a lot of, um, what you might call a creedal statements, you know, like the Apostles Creed and yeah. things where we can repeat to each other what we believe. Yeah. Well, group identity, building group identity is similar to that, but instead of focusing on what we believe, we're focusing on how we act. Right. And so there, there are statements like we are a people who. So we are a people who are, are slow to speak um, and slow to become angry, but we're very quick to listen. So that is that is actually as as members of the kingdom of God, that's who we are. Um, well, oftentimes we don't act that way. So when we don't act that way, we need to hear what kind of people are we. And if your brain is hearing over and over again as you go to church, as you meet with your your fellow uh, brothers and sisters, and they're telling, they're reminding you, we are a people who are are very slow to speak, but we're very quick to listen. Uh, your brain pre-consciously, faster than conscious thought latches onto that and starts accumulating that into your library of that's, that's being built in your brain about how we act, how our people act. Mm -hmm. Like a, it's like a, yeah, a conditioning. Yeah. So, so churches can build this in very similarly where they do the same Most, most churches do the same thing with doctrine and belief systems. Um, we would say, let's do this, have the same diligence and intentionality around how we act in very specific situations. It can be negative and positive things. What do we do when we have, when we get the big promotion or we win the lottery? How, how do God's children act then? Yeah. Um, how do God's children act when they lose, when you lose a job? Um, how, how do God's children act uh, in confusion when I don't know who I am or where I'm going or when, uh, you know, and I'm losing my temper and things like that. Um, you know, when we're constantly building this group identity, our brains are very much responding, but they're responding indirectly. You can't tell that your brain is incorporating that. What you start seeing is, is spontaneously different reactions to life situations. And I'm seeing this in my life. I'm like three years into this training and things will sometimes happen. And I'll look back and go, wow, if that had happened five years ago, I would have had a very different spontaneous response to that. Yeah. And so it's kind of it's kind of freaky to be honest with you because these spontaneous things start happening, and until you start seeing them happen, you're wondering is this really changing me? You know, because you don't have any direct evidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, except that we know how the brain works, and this is established science, and we know the brain is looking to group identity in order to form its character. That's so true. Like it's making me think about when I first came to Christ, and there are things that mm -hmm. I just didn't do until I was more entrenched in my church community. You know, and it was just like, okay, this is how we respond to things, you know, or even right. just like in worship, I was at a church where like everybody raised their hands, you know, and everybody would just fully surrender and it didn't matter what was going on around you. And at first I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, <laughs> like, yep. you know, at first, but then after a while, um, I learned to just let my, like to let that go, you know, and just like surrender to God and worship and kind of not care what anybody thinks around me. Like those are things I just learned from my community. Like, okay, this is what we do. Like we give yep. everything to God in these moments, um, you know, regardless of what we look like, even if we're crying ugly tears and everyone's around mm -hmm. us, everybody comes around and supports that, you know, that expression and yep. just different things about, we, we would always say like doing life together. Like that's a term that's still in my vocabulary to this day. Yep. It's like we do like, it's not, it's not, we go to church. It's we do life together. We're not a building. We're a community, you know, and those are, the types of uh, community traits that I learned from being around um, uh, my church community, 
that really shape really did shape me as a person into how I authentically step into other people's lives um, in a way that I just didn't wasn't attuned to before. So I love that. I can totally see how a group identity is so transformational, and it was for me. So just kind of affirming all of that. Yeah, you know, when I, I as well like you saw a lot of spontaneous changes in my character. You know, in the first three or four years of becoming a Christian. And I, I never really thought about it. I just, they just started happening. Yeah, you just do it. <laughs> and, and then after I graduated from, from college and our, and our really, it was a really good Christian group, real tight, that, but we kind of dispersed as we all got jobs and went, and went and had families and got married and everything. I saw a lot of those spontaneous character improvements and changes become more and more, less and less frequent, more sparse. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I'm scratching my head as a pastor of the church, how do people, how do people change? I'm also looking in the mirror and there, you know, there were areas in my life that seemed kind of resistant to change and, uh, and memorizing scripture and um, silence and solitude didn't seem to really touch those areas very much. They helped me some other things, but not with these areas. Yeah. And, uh, and as I would process, then I'm realizing according to the the fruit, I, my joy levels had got started slowly going down as I'd been out of this. You know, I had this really tight community and uh, some of the other Christian communities I was involved in were just more loosely connected. Right. And, and there wasn't that level of hesed. There wasn't as much mm-hmm. building joy. And then after a while, I found a, a really, really good kind of young adult group in my mm-hmm. um, late 20s. And it was very tightly connected. And then I started seeing growth kind of start up again. And I started seeing spontaneous changes. And then when we got out of that, we went into another church. And then I I saw the the, the joy levels go low. I didn't know this at the time. I just saw less and less uh, radical change in my life and more kind of resistance, stubbornness to character change. Yeah. And uh, and now I realize it's those the nutrients, the joy, the hesed, and the group identity um, we're p- becoming more and more sparse, and as a result, my soil was not uh, as nutritious. It was not is not is not it wasn't as fertile. Right. That's so interesting, and I I experienced yeah. the same thing, and it is really a night and day difference when you're in a church that is feeling that joy and coming together versus one that's like you said, just very loose. And I, and I think I think a practical takeaway I'm hearing from this is like. For your young adult group or your small group or whatever whatever have you groups you have in your church, try to create more opportunities that foster joy together. I think that one of the Absolutely. young adult groups that I got closest to, like the quickest, was because we did activities. There were weekly Bible studies, but then there were they were constantly doing activities that were fun, you know, like we went to an amusement park together or we all went to the movies together or there was constantly things we were doing together that sparked joy or even just like, I don't know, playing like dance games in the living room (laughs) and we bonded so quickly. I bonded so quickly with that group um, because we were enjoying so many things together. And that also opened the door for the closeness for us to do the hard parts of life together. Um, And so I love that just, you know, coming up with more ideas and ways to have joy together and letting that be a starting place. So I know we have one more nutrient and then I just have a couple quick Rapid fire questions. Um, so feel free to, to take the floor on the last nutrient. I hope you guys okay. are noting all four of these. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the fourth one then is really where the rubber meets the road. And, and the fourth nutrient needs to have the others in place for it to be maximally effective, to mm-hmm. have you know growing levels of joy, deeper and growing uh, bonding between us, and then the formation of a, of a group identity of how, how do we act in, in this messy life here on earth? How do we act as God's children and members of his kingdom? And then the fourth one is what we call healthy correction. And this really addresses when our character breaks down, mm-hmm. meaning we act in a way that doesn't look like the character of Jesus. Um, how do we lovingly but effectively re- remind a person who they really are? And correction is kind of one of those things. To me, it's risky because um, a lot of the correction I've received was what I would call toxic correction. Yes. Uh, which yeah. is, some, you know, some form of a shameful statement that says you are bad. What you did was bad. 
And, uh, and a lot of times that, that might've been right. I did something bad, but it's not helpful to me. And, uh, and I think yeah. a lot of the reason why we just, a lot of times we either, we, we correct people in a toxic way that's not healthy, or we just don't correct people at all because we don't know how to do it any other way. Um, cause we don't want to, you know, collapse the person in shame. And so part of really what the, the, the missing ingredient is, is healthy training around it. Like we, we had a training in our basement with Jim Wilder for 15 weeks. And every week we would practice giving what we called healthy shame messages. And we didn't like that, that phrase, like healthy shame. How can shame be healthy? That doesn't yeah. make sense to us. And so right. I kind of renamed it healthy correction. But Jim says, you know, without a prick of shame, uh, your brain does not change. Your, change, your brain, the way your brain was created actually needs a little teeny bit of shame in order for for you to change your character to change. Otherwise those circuits don't get activated and your character stays exactly the same. Yeah. It's like conviction. It just has to be, he said, the key is that you don't, it has to be very, very little. They don't need very much. And he said, so he kind of came up with a formula for healthy correction, which is, is um, as God's children, we, we don't blank. Instead, we, we are people who blank. Mm-hmm. So like if I, you know, we were in a meeting, you and I say I worked, you know, with you and we're in a meeting and, and my temper flared and I say I talked, there was an intern there and I, I got, I was impatient with him and, and kind of, you know, let him have it, right? Yeah. And you looked at me across the room and, and, and you probably waited for the meeting to end and I'm walking back to the, my office and you kind of knock on my office and you say, you know, Mike, I could be wrong because I don't know what's all going wrong, but it seems to me you weren't acting like yourself back then because mm. I know who you are. And uh, would you, would you be open to me reminding us who we are? And then I'll probably feel like a little wave of shame. I go, oh, no, what did I do? And then I'll realize, <laughs> oh yeah, she's right. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, if, if I've been trained, I'll say, okay, Brittany, give it to me. And you said, well, you know, we're, we're not a people uh, that, that are quick to anger, that put pressure on people publicly. Instead, we're people who are incredibly patient yeah. and kind Basically, because that's the way God is with us. Yeah. You know, how can we be less patient with other people than God is with us? Because that's who we are. And in uh, those kinds of interactions, that feels very different to me than the typical kind of toxic shame message that I've, I've experienced in the past. You know, it still has a little bit of pain. Like when you knock on my door and say, Michael, I, I don't think you're acting like yourself there. Ooh, that hurts, Right. But you don't leave me in shame. You don't then you don't slam the door and then walk away. Right. What you do is you remind me. Let me remind you who we are here. And uh, and I would love for that to be the the language, the verbiage in churches. Hey, let's remind each other who we are. That's really what a healthy correction is. Is it's a reminder uh, that we've forgotten who we are. And you and I and everyone listening to this program um, will think of times when we forgot who we were. Yeah, and uh, and, all, and our brain actually needs to have someone else tell us. It's very helpful to have another person tell us because that really goes into the into the areas that we that need to be activated. I won't go into the brain science, but our ba- brains were designed around that. And uh, and in our book on the chapter on correction, I even go into some some pretty in depth examples of Jesus giving healthy correction to several different people, and it shows that he was just the master. I mean, mm-hmm. it is amazing. I almost read read those some of his examples in, in with new eyes after understanding how the brain works, how he designed the brain. And so I encourage you to go read that and especially read some of the examples I, I include of how Jesus corrects people and how seamlessly and fluidly, lovingly, and yet he also doesn't back off. He can be pretty blunt. Yeah. Yeah. And yet with great, great love. I mean, like he's just he is the master. And I would encourage you if you have more um, questions on that to study some of the examples I present in the book because he is really the one that does it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, so I can't, I can't go around telling people like get behind me, Satan. But <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which obviously he's specifically in context of that situation, but you know, right. I tried to use that for a while, but didn't seem to <laughs> connect well with people. Yeah. Just you, yeah. get behind me, Satan. Um, so shifting gears here for a second, you know, um, I love all of this, you know, and you're right. Like all of these nutrients do really make up a healthy church and you can feel that, like you can feel the differences. I've been in a number of churches from, you know, the West coast in California where I'm from to Dallas, Texas, where I lived for a while. And you can feel just in the environment, those differences. However, I've also been in unhealthy churches, um, where, um, all of that can just go wrong. 
unfortunately, as there are people and people are imperfect. And unfortunately, just hearing even recently just about the spiritual abuse and manipulation that can sometimes take yeah. place, which is what pushes people away from church and which I always say they're not all this way. But it does right. exist. I've experienced some of that, and I know a number of people who have had it. And so can we just touch on, like, how does narcissism get entrenched in a Christian community? Um, because it's just so the opposite of the spirit of mm -hmm. Christ and everything that we are just mentally, emotionally, spiritually um, cultivated in. Um, but not only does it happen in leadership, but... Sometimes those leaders thrive in narcissism, um, mm -hmm. through narcissism in the church. And it just, sometimes you're just so discouraged because you're just like, how is this happening? Yep. And how are they elevating, um, continuing to elevate through narcissism? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a very good question. It's really of, of the time, you know, the question of the time we're in right now in the, yeah. in the church, in our Christian culture, especially in our country. Yes. Um, one of the interesting things about the soil is when soil becomes depleted, there's oftentimes certain weeds that can thrive in that depleted soil. And so right. when our soil is depleted of joy and hesed attachments, you know, the attachments are, are, are shallow or medium level. When our group identity is not strongly um, built up, so we know who we are, how we act in situations, and we, and we don't know how to correct each other the soil is really primed to attract and to grow narcissism, narcissistic behavior. Because narcissism is really, right. um, it, it's, a, it's a failure of having any kind of feedback mechanism. The opposite of being, of, of, of narcissism is having a, um, kind of bowing your head, you know, having an ability to receive correction. Mm -hmm. The only way we receive correction is if I have um, a, a good enough level of joy and, and you and I have enough of a bond that you can come and knock on my office. So there's that hesed there. Now all that's faster than, than conscious thought. So my brain's already preparing itself to be able to accept it. And then if we've had some group identity around treating people kindly, this is kind of the kind of people who we are. And then you deliver a, a, a kind of a healthy correction to me. We are primed, you know, maybe I'm veering off into some narcissism behavior and you bring me right back. Right. In unhealthy soil, that whole link is broken. And usually what you have is narcissism surround themselves with a bubble, a bubble community who mm -hmm. will affirm them. And if anyone, you know, starts growing some courage and starts pushing back on some, some attitudes or behaviors, boom, they're immediately out. They're rejected. Right. And then in the leader, the narcissist person is not always the leader. Sometimes it's kind of a hidden influencer or maybe a, you know, a family that's very influential in the church. It can be lots of things, but they, they will keep this, this self-affirming bubble community around them and it essentially isolates them from any kind of healthy correction. And without healthy correction, we don't change. So there's, you know, there's really no way to help a narcissist unless you can work with the community around that person. Yeah. That's so interesting because I've seen it where they they may even preach these things, right? They may even preach mm -hmm. on the character of Christ or the fruits of the Spirit. And they're preaching all these ideals um, that the group identity should have. But because there aren't healthy attachments with those leaders and because they're not open to that healthy correction and whatnot, even though they're preaching these things, who they are is very different uh, than yeah. what they're saying. Because even though they have the words and the ideals, they don't have that, those, uh, those connections or those relationships or that relational soil that's deep enough with those around them to actually themselves be aligned with those things. And people will yeah, go, oh, well, they're preaching it, so that's enough. People yeah. think preaching it is right. enough to prove themselves, but it's like, but there's no real assessment, evaluation, or, or um, uh, correction of character. But like yeah. you're saying, they, they put themselves in a bubble. Yeah. And I was, I was talking to a man about this, too, and he had been involved in um, kind of a church planning, church planting training program. So we would train future church planners. And then he came across uh, Jim Wilder's book on narcissism called The Pandora Problem. And then he came across the other half of church, our book on this. 
And he says, you know, I started looking at some of the characteristics you list for narcissism. And we actually, those were kind of the characteristics we looked for, for a good church planner. Yeah. Oh, you know, almost yeah. narcissistic behaviors. They right. Look good. Because, you know, one of the characteristics as well of, of narcissism is that they, uh, a narcissistic person is very good at justifying themselves. Yeah. They're and charismatic. Winning the argument and, yeah. Being right is, is the key. And they're very, very good at shining and sparkling on a stage and, and it allows them to control the narrative. And once they control the mm. narrative then they can keep, they can choose the people that surround them. And if anyone does push up against them, they have self-justification. They, they really quickly know all the quick answers to show that you're wrong and I'm right. So you, who are you to correct me? Wow. And so they almost, you know, they're building a, a protective bubble around themselves. And then that is how, that is really at the center of a lot of the church blowups and headlines we've seen over the last three to five years. I've been saving articles. Wow. Um, but over and over again, we see that, that same context, uh, you know, a, uh, a self-affirming, a, 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 the, the leader-affirming bubble community around a leader that who's protected from any kind of account, real accountability, shallow relationships, low joy, and very little group identity. And that's, you're just kind of asking for that weed, that little seed to fall into the soil and thrive in, until you start really building up your soil. The, the good part of this is when you have healthy soil, when you have um, deep joy and strong Hesed attachments and strong and, and group identity, and you're training your people how to correct each other, and you're showing them how to do it, you're, and the leaders are doing it themselves, that church is very resistant to narcissism. Right. So I have a question that's maybe a more, um, I guess maybe a more harder or direct question, but if there is uh -huh. a church that has unhealthy soil and the weed of narcissism, maybe in the leadership, or like you said, some unknown influencer has really rooted out throughout this church, um, like as far as the steps to take for there to be any chance of this church being healthy again, or really being rooted in genuine love and joy and, and accountability, um, what does that look like for that to actually take place? It can feel impossible. You know, does it look mm -hmm. like that, that church leader completely stepping down and stepping away and bringing in someone new? Does it look like just, you know, letting go of that church completely? Like, I, you know, I think this is where people bed, bang their heads against the wall when they do encounter a church like this. It's like, what is it going to take? Is it going to take completely uprooting and breaking down to rebuild? for this to have any chance of starting over and, and thriving and being healthy? Well, you find in, in a lot of diagnostic opinions of psychologists and therapists that uh, narcissism is untreatable. And the only thing you can do is, is, you know, treat it like cancer, get rid of it. Mm. And Jim Wilder and I uh, disagree with that. Actually. Um, we believe it, it, it would be appropriate to have a narcissistic person, narcissistic person step down, but stay in the community. And if the community is willing to work through these soils and build joy and hesed detachments and group identity, and, and then learn how to learn to live, you know, almost create a culture of correction in your church of, of healthy correction, um, that gives the narcissist a chance to change. Yeah. Because um, narcissists don't respond to one-on-one -on -one therapy because it just makes them a better narcissist. Right. Because you know, their language. And, yeah. Yeah, you're you're giving them language and you're you're explaining to to them how human nature works and it gives them actually more self justifications to come up against someone who might point something out in their life. Um, that does not that same dynamic does not happen when the community around a narcissist of people who are bonded to that person and love that person start building group identity and then healthy shame messages, healthy correction, right, in a very very gentle and loving way. And even, even the rest of the community shares their own healthy correction. So the narcissist sees other people correcting each other so that when, when he or she gets corrected, it's not like they're this horribly bad person. That's what everyone in this community does. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that is a community where a narcissist has a chance to heal because it kind of gets in under their armor. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Just kind of yeah. being brought back into the fold um, for healing. Um, I'm so glad that you touched on that because like you said, I've, I've also seen it making a lot of different headlines <laughs> and not yeah. just with like churches, but even just like ministries, 
you know, right. um, even online, like influencers and whatnot, or Christian leaders online. And so um, I'm really glad we touched on that. Well, we you have given so much food for thought, um, so <laughs> much to uh, just sit on and let digest and think about you guys. Um, you know, if you want to listen to or just kind of dive more into this topic and everything we're talking about today, be sure to check out um, Michael's book, The Other Half of Church. We're going to link that into the show notes. And so, Michael, for anyone who wants to connect with you following this and the work you're doing, what is the best way to stay connected with you? Um, you can go to, uh, we have a, um, a webpage that's dedicated to the book called www.theotherhalfofchurch.com. And so there you can get, connect with us and you can also see whether, you know, this podcast will show up on there and any, any other interviews or articles we read and just kind of follow what we're doing and hopefully, uh, we can, we can help you out wherever you at. This, this is, you know, this is a kind of a new half of church that has, has been forgotten, and we we just love help, happy, having people wake up to these this forgotten half of character development that we believe has the potential of really ra- radically changing what we see um, when we look at Christians and their character. I love this so much. I wish I heard all of these things, you know, years ago, because then I would have had my eyes open to look out for more of these things and what to do about them. So I I really appreciate you and the work you're doing in this conversation. Um, Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out the other half of church, like I said, um, and we'll be back until next time.